Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Dr. Cutterback just asked me if, uh, if I wanted him to say anything tonight or if I just wanted to give the talk. So I guess that's a hint that we should get started. He's got, you can read his bio on the flyer. He's a professor at Christum College. He received his PhD at Catholic University of America. But more importantly than that, as a philosopher, he's taken the time to set aside a space in his life for reflection, for quiet, to be able to consider the higher things of creation. And no degree can replace that. A good friend of mine, please welcome Dr. John Cutterbeck. Uh, thank you very much. Good evening. Um, is, I, I know Sabatino wants uh, us all to be more like Father Groeschel, and I think he particularly wants me to be more like Father Groeschel, and he made sure to uh, mention that he doesn't ask for a stipend. Um, <laughs> But uh, I'm, I'm working on being more like him, but I'm not there yet. Okay. I, I have uh, I, I found children to be an amazing grace in many ways. And, and one thing about them for sure is they, they keep you humble. I have, I have a, a, a particularly precious just-turned-six-year-old who, who notices everything. Now... I'm one, of the, I'm one of those people that had kind of the curse when I was younger. I was always carded when I wanted to get alcohol, even well past being of age to get alcohol. And anyone who was like me in that way knows how incredibly annoying that is. You're with your friends, and none of them get carded. You get carded. You, in fact, are 26 years old at this point. And, well, I just always thought, well, you know, someday, you know, from what I hear... I'll think, you know, the tables are going to turn and, and this is going to be better. But sometimes God has other plans because my, Juliana was sitting in my lap the other day and she's just very thoughtfully looking at my head. And, and she says, you know, Daddy, there's only two things I don't like about your hair. That and that. <laughs> My students say I'm not very often left speechless, but I have to admit that I wasn't quite sure what to say to that. I want to read you a quotation. This is not on your handout. I want to read you a, a quotation from Pope John Paul II. Faith and reason are like two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth. And God has placed in the human heart a desire to know the truth, in a word, to know himself, so that by knowing and loving God, men and women may also come to the fullness of truth about themselves. This is from his famous encyclical, Fides et Ratio, Faith and Reason. Again, the, the very famous opening line, 
Faith and reason are like two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth. Surely, in a secular society, it's particularly important that Pope John Paul II pointed out there are these two wings. You can't fly without faith and reason. You will never be able to get to the heights without, and especially he's emphasizing to a secular society who does not understand faith and the necessary role of faith, he's pointing out the necessity of faith. What I'd like to point to, I think, for many Christians, it's often the case that the other one actually also needs to be pointed to. Faith and reason are like two wings with which the human spirit soars to the truth. What is this reason that he's talking about? How often do we hear about how necessary, how critical it is for us if we're going to be serious Christians? If we want to come to the heights of contemplation, if we want to come to the height of human life, how often do we hear about the necessary role of cultivating reason? For one thing, in fact, has been clear in the Christian tradition from the very beginning. Reason, this amazing gift that God has given to all, including those who don't have the gift of faith, that reason is absolutely essential to coming to human perfection. And that we learn to use reason well. So it's particularly that that I want to emphasize with you here this evening. And in view of that, take a look at some great Greek philosophers. For it is also in a great Christian tradition that we turn to those Greeks in order to see what reason can do. This goes all the way back to a very early father of the church whose name is Justin Martyr. He lived from 103 to 165. He himself had been a student of philosophy. He converted to Christianity and one of the things that he is most famous for was emphasizing there are these amazing critical truths that the philosophical tradition of Greece and Rome has seen. And they lead to Christianity. They are critical in Christianity. And we Christians need to know them. He even spoke of how clearly in God's providential plan, these truths had been particularly clearly seen by these great Greek philosophers. And so right from the earliest days of Christianity, there's this great tradition of, in order to cultivate this amazing thing called reason, we look to them for help in so doing. Before we go into it, I just want to give you a quick test for yourself to help you think where do things stand in your own life, in your own understanding as regards faith and reason. What if I were to ask you, 
can you do this? And I just, it's a little test for you to just think inside yourself. What if I were to ask you, please explain what is a truly good human life? And you may not refer to anything from divine revelation. But answer that question. What is a truly good human life? But answer that question without referring to divine revelation. Plato and Aristotle could do that. They did it in an amazing way. That again, from the earliest days of Christianity, the Christians said, this is wonderful. They have seen. This shows that natural reason, this God-given gift to all human persons, can come to see answers to these critically important questions. Please note, to make this point, is not in any way to diminish the importance of divine revelation. Justin Martyr himself would have pointed out, it's not as though the philosophers came to the whole answers to the critically important questions, but they did come to amazingly true answers that were able to capture fundamental truths upon which then faith goes further. Let's know something about our culture. In our culture, if we were to ask ourselves, ask those around us, where would we turn if we want to go to those who have knowledge? If we have a very important question that we really need an answer to, in general, what is the, what's the inclination in our culture? To whom would we see ourselves turning? As it were, who are the authorities? Wouldn't it most often be scientists? If we have big questions, well, who are the ones that really know? Well, men with white coats on in labs somewhere who are researching and they're finding the answers to these questions. Once upon a time, there was a civilization, though it respected what we call science, if in that civilization it was asked, to whom do we turn for the important answers? If it wasn't to a religious leader, then it would be to a philosopher. Those who pursue wisdom. It's in a sense understandable today, those who go by the name of philosophers have given up any right to be turned to. Some of you perhaps have had the experience of going to a secular university, sometimes not even going to a secular university, and studying what is called philosophy. It doesn't have the answers. In fact, it makes a point. The main strands of modern philosophy make a point of saying, we can't answer those questions. So they have given up any position of being turned to for answers to these questions. But there are earlier philosophers for whom that is not the case. And that is why, ladies and gentlemen, this evening we're going to turn together as Christians 
for centuries have done and look to a few great Greeks and say, what did they see and what can we learn from them about this great thing called wisdom? So here's the plan. This evening, the plan is to fundamentally look at a few points that we can learn about what wisdom is. What is wisdom? What did they mean by this amazing thing called wisdom? I think you will find it very beautiful. And in looking at that, we'll also learn a few things about what we might do to find it. My plan then for next week would be to actually look at specific insights that they had that they would say are what wise people see. In other words, we'll more talk about the wisdom itself next week. Take a few key insights of when you have these insights, this means you are wise. What we want to do this week, though, is look at what is this thing that they're talking about called wisdom anyway. And there's three main points, then, that I want to take from the ancients. And I will refer on occasion to the handout that I've given you, and I'll let you know when I want to do that. But here are the three basic insights. First, there is a such thing as wisdom. There is a such thing as wisdom, a knowledge that transcends all other knowledge. And human persons can get it. That's the first point. There is a such thing as wisdom. Secondly, it belongs to the wise to order. This is a very famous line from Aristotle, sapientis est ordinare. It is of the wise to order. St. Thomas Aquinas loved that line. He spoke of it very often, and we're going to see a couple beautiful points about that. And the third point about wisdom is that in wisdom is human happiness. In wisdom is human happiness. We will look now in turn at each of those three. There is a such thing as wisdom. I'd put it this way. What's the bottom line? There are questions that need to be answered. These questions can be answered, and very often, they are not answered. Again, there are questions for all human beings that absolutely need to be answered. They can be answered, and most often, they are not answered. But the Greeks have this fundamental conviction, you can get the answer. It's not easy, but you can. And in fact, you should. Nay, further, you must, if you are going to be a good human person, living a fulfilled human life, you must come to the answer to this question. But many don't. Now I'm going to turn to a, a major character here, Socrates. Just so you know, the big three that we want to consider are Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Great things come in threes. Socrates was the teacher of Plato. Plato was the teacher of Aristotle. We are moving here 
from the 5th century into the 4th century BC. Socrates never wrote a word. Everything we know about Socrates was written by Plato. And so the quotations that we're going to look at are actually Socrates speaking, but it's Plato writing it. So functionally, we'll treat these two as the same, for Plato is presenting what his teacher Socrates said. Then we're going to look at separately the writings of Aristotle. But most that Plato teaches, he teaches through the mouth of Socrates in his writings. So here's the neat thing about Socrates, the character. I don't know how much you've been exposed to him. He would go around Athens. These are all Athenians. He would go around Athens. And the thing that most shocked him, the thing that most surprised him was that people were not worried that they didn't have the answers to the most important questions. He was just utterly baffled that all of these people were just going about their daily business seemingly unaware that they are missing what's absolutely critical to their own life. For instance, he loved to just stop people and do something like this. Do you know what a good carpenter is? The person would say, well, yeah, I do. Do you, do you know what a good shopkeeper is? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure I do. Do you know what a good farmer is? Yeah. And they'd say, do you know what a good man is? And the person normally wouldn't have much of an answer. And he'd scratch his head and he'd say, how can you not know that? And if you don't know that, doesn't that concern you? What difference does it make if you know what a good this, that, and the other is if you don't have a clear conception of what a good man is? What are you doing? But he would consistently find this. Look, if you would, on your handout. And I'm going to read out loud the first quotation. This is from a dialogue called The Apology, which is where he is on trial for his life. As you might know from history, uh, this trial is not going to go well for him. But he's not concerned about that. To the end, he's trying to teach in his defense. He's giving an account of what he would do. And he says this, Finally, I went to the craftsman, for I was conscious of knowing practically nothing. He always likes to talk about how little he knows. And I knew that I would find that they had knowledge of many fine things. In this I was not mistaken. They knew things I did not know. And to that extent, they were wiser than I. But gentlemen of the jury, the good craftsmen seemed to me to have the same fault as the poets. Each of them, because of his success at his craft, thought himself very wise in other most important pursuits. And this error of theirs overshadowed the wisdom they had, so that I asked myself on behalf of the oracle whether I should prefer to be as I am, with neither their wisdom nor their ignorance, or to have both. The answer I gave myself and the oracle was that it was to my advantage to be as I am. What's he saying here? I think he has a critical insight into a challenge that is universal to the human condition. 
we don't realize our ignorance. Period. Full stop. We think we know much more than we do. What he consistently found was that because we know some things, because we're competent in some particular area, that gives us a confidence that we have as much knowledge as we need to have. We could come up with current examples. Think of the businessman who's very successful. It's very easy for that person to think, hey, okay, hey, I don't know everything, but I know something very important, and so things are fundamentally going well in my life. Things are practically working out fine. I know fundamentally what I need to know. Socrates is concerned there's not people asking the right questions. People aren't realizing how ignorant they are because there's not more people like him who are coming to them and saying, but what about such and such? What about such and such? So, what, 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 what's the bottom line here? Socrates and his student Plato and his student Aristotle have this fundamental conviction. There is a deeper knowledge. There are higher questions, much more important questions than the questions that the vast majority of people think about. And there is an answer to them. It's not an easy answer to come to, but it can be come to, and most of us are not. But it is there. And it makes all the difference in the world. Our second point. It belongs to the wise man to order. It belongs to the wise man to order. So, at this point we've seen they are saying there is a higher knowledge, there is a deeper knowledge of critically important things. And we've just given one example, and it was Socrates' favorite one of a higher thing. What is a truly good human life? There is an answer to that, and most people don't have it. But even more dangerous, they don't seem to realize that they don't have it. I think of the old saw. There's a very important truth to this. Honestly, I didn't see this. When I first heard this, I never liked this saying. The more I read these men, the more I realize there's something very important here. Often, it is more important to have the right question than to have the right answer. You, of course, have confidence that there is an answer to those key questions. And it belongs to the wise man to order, our second point. I'm going to divide this quickly into three points. The wise man sees order, the wise man lives order, and the wise man gives order. The wise man sees order, the wise man lives order, and the wise man gives order. We'll come back to this shortly when we come to briefly consider the notion of contemplation, but seeing order. In the Greek understanding of wisdom, it is only when you come to the highest knowledge that you see 
everything in its place. You see how everything fits together. You see, as it were, the big picture. That great line, you need to see the big picture. That's a nice little thumbnail way of expressing what they mean by wisdom. You have seen so deep, you have seen so high, that now you are able to understand how everything fits together. You see, fundamentally, the order of everything that exists. And that, first of all, this is what the wise person does. Sees this order. You know what I find incredibly refreshing and exciting about this? These men actually had confidence. Reality is so amazingly beautiful, it is worthy to be unendingly contemplated. Reality is so amazingly beautiful, it is worthy to be unendingly contemplated. Again, ladies and gentlemen, these are not Christians. They're just looking around at being, and they stand in amazement. And they are sure that one can come to see the order. What a difference it makes when even just a few people move through this world with this attitude of, gosh, isn't amazing, isn't reality shockingly beautiful? I want to see. And people who have the conviction, get a load of this, who have the conviction that reality is always better than we have begun to see. These men were utterly convinced of that. The truth of reality is always better than we have even begun to see. Second point under it belongs to the wise to order. We said see order, live order. We'll talk a little bit more about this next week when some of the specific points we look at will be about what the good human life is. And we'll talk a little bit about ethics. And that's where the point of living order, most of all, comes out. But I'm just give you the thumbnail sketch here. In their beautiful conception here of wisdom, they hold, it always follows upon seeing order that the wise person then incarnates that order in action. That how one lives is an expression of the beautiful order that has first been seen. Already right there you have the foundation for an amazingly beautiful ethics. Do you realize first of all what that means? That is an utter rejection of the fundamental central position of most modern ethics which is that you get to choose your own values. That everyone is free to come up with his or her own values 
and then live by that, as though we create what is good or not. And they have this simple confidence that first you see the order of things, and then it is our dignity to put that order that is first discovered, not made, the fundamental order of things, these men realize this, the fundamental order of things man does not make prior to man's making is always something fundamentally more noble. That first of all we see in order in creation, in order that then we put into effect in our willing, in our desiring, in our actions. That is wisdom in action. May I read quotation number two? This is at the center of the apology where, again, Socrates is giving his defense, talking about what he had done. This, you're going to like this. This is really a, a beautiful point. The main thing I want to look at is just the very last thing, but I want to read the whole paragraph because it's just one of the most amazing paragraphs in Greek philosophy. Gentlemen of the jury, I am grateful and I am your friend, but I will obey the God rather than you as long as I draw breath and am able. I shall not cease to practice philosophy to exhort you in my usual way to point out to any one of you whom I happen to meet. Good sir, you are an Athenian, a citizen of the greatest city with the greatest reputation for both wisdom and power. Are you not ashamed of your eagerness to possess as much wealth, reputation, and honors as possible? While you do not care for nor give thought to wisdom or truth or the best possible state of your soul, isn't that amazing? I mean, it's just like a preacher on the corner. Isn't that amazing? Then, if one of you disputes this and says he does care, I shall not let him go at once or leave him, but I shall question him, examine him, and test him. And if I do not think he has attained the goodness that he says he has, I shall reproach him because he attaches little importance to the most important things and greater importance to inferior things. I don't know about you, but I mean, my back just tingled as I read that to you. I mean, it's about order. I mean, the wise capture things very simply because they see so deeply. In a sense, he's just saying, look, folks, some things are much more important than others. Are we going to live that way or no? Have you seen the order, or haven't you? And if you have, why aren't you living that way? In a sense, he's just saying, first, you see what's most important. You see the order. And then, you live it. If you really see it, it will be clear in your life. By the way, Take this with you, and sometime reread this, scratch out the word Athenian, and write in the word American, and read that to you ag yourself again, and picture Socrates walking around. Can I just read the first sentence again then? Good sir, you are an, fill in the blank, a citizen of the greatest city with the greatest reputation for both wisdom and power. Are you not ashamed? of your eagerness to possess as much wealth, 
reputation and honors as possible, while you do not care for nor give thought to wisdom or truth or the best possible state of your soul. The third point under that it pertains to the wise to order is that the wise give order. This I find again particularly beautiful because it, it very much fits with the live order and the give order very close. Remember, they're both rooted in, first of all, the key to wisdom is we discover an order. They weren't sure where that order came from. I mean, side point, Christians might know more where that order came from, but that's not the question right now. They saw a fundamental order in reality. They were amazed by it. They saw that... It, Central to who we are is we need to see it. It's worthy simply to be seen. But then further, we live it. We put that order into our actions, our affections. But then further, we don't only put that order into ours. A key part of the human vocation is with wisdom to give order to others, to put order into things external to us. And we could divide that into two. We can put order into the actions of other people, and we can also put order into the material world. Now, I want to be very brief about this, but I think you'll appreciate how this is, this is worthy of pursuing in itself. The Greeks had a beautiful notion of what they called the household. And you see both of these points very nicely in it. Where would they picture the wise adult? Because, of course, wisdom takes time to cultivate. You don't normally think of wisdom and children in the same, in the same breath. So, where does the wise adult give order? It's first been seen. It's been incarnated in one's own actions. And now, for many, the natural vocation of the married life, where is that order then most of all given? It's given in parenting. It's given in the formation of the young, where the appropriate order is placed into them. That's what the formation and education for the Greeks was. It is to place this order into their lives. And they have this amazingly beautiful notion then of authority. Authority is precisely the position where you put order into others that are under your authority. For the Greeks, authority and wisdom always go together. If someone has authority who is not wise, you have a problem. <laughs> it is the wise who naturally are worthy of authority. For authority is nothing other than the role of directing according to the order that has been seen. Do you see how the whole thing fits together for them? 
then it's such a beautiful understanding of human life, all expressed in this very simple notion called wisdom. If you would jump to number eight. There's a couple of typos in here for which I apologize. This is from a book of Aristotle called his Metaphysics. Of the sciences also, that which is desirable on its own accounts and for the sake of knowing is more of the nature of wisdom than that which is desirable on account of its results. And the superior science is more of the nature of wisdom than the ancillary. For the wise man must not be ordered, but must order. He must not obey another, but the less wise must obey him. Central to their, to their worldview is it's of the human vocation to give order to things. And in order to do that, we must be wise. Hand in hand with wisdom, with the vision the high vision, seeing the whole, seeing everything in its place, putting that into one's own life, is then that you have the vocation to put order into other things, everything around you. And isn't that a beautiful notion? Those who really are wise. Order shows up all around them. Their friendships, their relationships, their family life. Their favorite example of that was the family. If the parents have committed themselves to wisdom, have committed themselves to studying and finding the answers to those higher questions, coming to the big view, putting that into their own lives, that that order will overflow into everything in the household, most of all, the children. Our third point, and I'm moving towards wrapping up here, our third point is that in this wisdom is the key to human happiness. In this wisdom is the key to human happiness. So first of all, again, we saw that they're insisting there is a such thing as wisdom. Most people are not even tuned in to the fact that there is this truth. And then we talked more about what this wisdom is and does in the seeing order, living order, and giving order. That, is, that gives us the foundation for this final point. They're utterly convinced that where there's wisdom, there is human happiness. Where there is not wisdom, there is not human happiness, period. Since we could just stop right there. They are so convinced that human nature is so noble and is designed for something so great. When it doesn't achieve wisdom, it is utterly, utterly unsatisfied. A couple of key texts. So one of the most famous texts in Plato where Socrates is speaking is the third one. Number three on, your, on the front of your page. Socrates is ending up his defense and he says the following. If I say that it is impossible for me to keep quiet because that means disobeying the God, you will not believe me and will think I am being ironical. On the other hand, if I say that it is the greatest good for man 
to discuss virtue every day. And those other things about which you hear me conversing and testing myself and others. For the unexamined life is not worth living for man. You will believe me even less. That penultimate, second to last clause is one of the most famous clauses in all of Plato. The unexamined life is not worth living. Now that could be misunderstood. We have to understand that properly. Let's quickly look at that. What is this, what is this examination and why is it so important? Before we say what it means by the examination, let's just say this. Why is it so important? Again, he's convinced there are these higher questions. There is an answer to them, but the only way to get to them is by disciplined, persevering pursuit of the truth. What he's calling examination is what brings one to wisdom. And this is perhaps the most important takeaway practical point here this evening. How does one become wise? Wisdom, we can say of wisdom, what you can say of any of the most important things in human life, it never happens by accident. There are few who come to wisdom for a reason. It's difficult, but at the same time it is reachable by all. It is the result of disciplined, persevering effort examination. Now, we need to know something further. What does one do? Especially, you need to do what he says in the clause right before it. If I say it's the greatest good for man to discuss virtue every day and those other things about which you hear me conversing, testing myself and others. What's examination? Examination means pursuing wisdom in a community where we are constantly discussing these things. If we want to become wise, we have to, together with those around us, ask the right questions and pursue the answers together. It's the only way. That's what he means by examination. So then what does he mean when he says, the unexamined life is not worth living? What's he simply asserting to us we were designed to see. We were designed to see the truth. If we do not make the effort, the persevering, disciplined effort to come see the highest truths, we will not. And then, what does he mean by our life is not worth living? He's not saying we've lost human dignity, but he's just simply saying we have failed. We have failed as human beings. We have not done what we were designed to do. Other point to connect it with happiness is Aristotle on contemplation. If you would, start with number six. What are we going to see here, ladies and gentlemen? Our final point this evening is to get a very quick snapshot of Aristotle's argument that in contemplation is happiness. And I'll just tell you this. Contemplation, that beautiful word that the Christian tradition takes up and uses so much, it comes from the Greeks, and contemplation names the main act that those who are wise do. 
later on when Aquinas draws this out, when St. Thomas Aquinas draws this out, he'll say, wisdom names the habit or the virtue. Contemplation is what it does. So wisdom's the habit. Contemplation is the acting out of it. He gives us the basis for this by giving us this view of who humans are. This is the famous opening line of his metaphysics, number six, the top of the back page. All men, by nature, desire to know. An indication of this is the delight we take in our senses. For even apart from their usefulness, they are loved for themselves. And above all others, the sense of sight. For not only with a view to action, but even when we are not going to do anything, we prefer seeing, one might say, to everything else. Ladies and gentlemen, there in a nutshell is Aristotle's insight into who we are. Captured by a great 20th century philosopher, Thomist, who loved to use the line, man is made for seeing. Man is made for seeing. Contemplation, the simple loving gaze upon that which is most important. It's that for which we're made. Look at this amazing paragraph in number seven where Aristotle argues the contemplation is the happiness of man. Now he who exercises his reason and cultivates it seems to be both in the best state of mind and most dear to the gods. For if the gods have any care for human affairs, as they are thought to have, it would be reasonable both that they should delight in that which was best and most akin to them, that is reason, and that they should reward those who love and honor this most as caring for the things that are dear to them and acting both rightly and nobly. And that all these attributes belong most of all to the lover of wisdom is manifest. He, therefore, is the dearest to the gods. And he who is that will presumably be also the happiest. So in this way, too, the lover of wisdom will more than any other be happy. Isn't that an amazing line of reasoning? Aristotle, no divine revelation. What does a human being do that is most like what, quote, the gods do? To contemplate, to see, to gaze with love upon that which is highest, which is precisely to exercise this thing called wisdom. Ladies and gentlemen, in conclusion, with the great Western tradition that goes back before the coming of our Savior, we can see the truth that our life is about wisdom. Our life is about wisdom. And in God's great providential plan, these amazing Greeks have told us fundamentally what wisdom is. Though they themselves never were able to come to it nearly as fully 
as a Christian can. They knew, I, I shudder to say in certain ways, better than many Christians do, how clearly it's all about coming to see the highest things, to get answers to the questions that can be answered, that must be answered, that so often are not answered. Thank you very much for your attention. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Dr. Cutterback. Our usual rules apply, but Dr. Cutterback hasn't spoken for us here at the Institute in quite a while. We've grown quite a bit since last yeah, time. Yeah, huh? congratulations. Um, a great job. And, uh, and so I'll have to give him the rules. So our usual rules, maximum of five questions, maximum of five minutes. So your, your answers have to be short. That's your first rule. That's actually your only rule. Get to the point, in other words. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and for you, uh, your, your question has to be one sentence long. If you take a breath, it's too long. Uh, and it has to have to do with the subject at hand. Um, it has to have a question mark on the end. And what's my final rule? Do not take my... Thank you, Kathy. Do not take my microphone away from me. All right. Yes, sir. Several centuries before these great philosophers, Scripture tells us that the wisest mortal who ever lived was... Solomon. And he seemed to find in the pursuit and attainment of wisdom far from happiness. So how do we reconcile these two? Um, very, very good question. There's always some students that like asking the questions that can't be answered. <laughs> um, just, just kidding. Actually, I think there is an answer to that one. There's wisdom, and then there's wisdom. There's always human freedom. So one, we talked about seeing order, and then we talked about living order. There can come to be a division. Just because we see it does not mean that we will necessarily live it. So I suggest, I don't uh, pretend to proclaim the absolute answer there, but I would suggest this as an answer. Solomon, of course, you know, before Christ, would have more of a challenge in living out these truths. To the extent that Solomon did not find happiness, it's because he didn't live in order that he had seen. The truly wise person ultimately has both of those. And so, ultimately, yes, was he as wise as he should have been? No, he wasn't. And, and, and to say that he was the most wise is, remember, before Christ, that's comparing him to ones that aren't going to be at the level that those after Christ are going to be able to be. But I'd say, but my, but my main, I mean, it was sin that kept him from being happy. And sin is not wise. So he had fallen short of his own wisdom in his sinfulness. Um, in quote one, it has here, for I was conscious of knowing practically nothing. Socrates or Plato said that. Right. And later on you were talking about... Um, authority as delivering wisdom. If part of wisdom is humility, how can anyone who is in authority feel worthy of such a position? Great, great question. Um, by the way, I didn't say that authority delivers wisdom. Authority requires wisdom. Okay, just to be clear. All right. Now, here's the thing. It's a very delicate balance. Wisdom, of course, is truth. Humility, too, is to see the truth. This is a great lesson 
from Socrates. We need to know what we know and what we don't know. That's central. Here's a very beautiful point. Socrates loves to talk about how little he knows. Now watch, I'm going to make a little analogy for you. Now blessed, Mother Teresa would talk about how not holy she was. Now, what are we supposed to do with that? Here's the analogy. The more holy you are, the more you realize how much holier you should be and you truly see yourself as not holy in the sense of as holy as you should be. It's the same thing with wisdom. This is, they had this conviction, and this again is so beautiful, that they're convinced that reality is so deep, so profound, and so beautiful, that the wiser you are, meaning the more you see, the more you are profoundly aware of how little you see. So he would talk about how he knows so little. He's right. And the really neat thing about it is you could only know how right he is if you're there seeing it with him. We have to take his word for it that he sees, as it were, because he has seen so, he has so much more the big picture, he sees how much more there is to see. So he keeps speaking about how little he knows. Does that make sense? Right, now, I haven't directly answered your question, but that's the key background for it. When you're in a position of authority, then you, you need to realize, yes, how little you know, but you had better also make sure that you do look for the truth to make sure that you have at least enough wisdom to be worthy of your position. We're called to exercise authority. Every parent in the room can recognize that you're, you're called to something that you feel in certain ways is beyond you. The more that you realize that and the more that you keep thinking about that, the better you're going to be at being a parent. In authority, that's the way King Louis was in France, St. King Louis. He was very aware that he was unworthy in an important sense. And in that very awareness, he was much more worthy than most others would be. I was a little confused in the final part where you were saying you have to do uh, questioning and be in community and then contemplation, which seems individual. Could you address that a little I, more? That's a great question. So it, it's a great philosophical problem issue of how do we relate contemplation to the more communal end of man. And there is a beautiful a connection. Yes, there is definitely a certain, I'll say, aloneness or individuality to contemplation. But at the same time, there's an absolutely critical aspect of community. Consider, for instance, something such as the beautiful Benedictine, the broader monastic tradition. They come to the heights of contemplation by living in community life. Central is private prayer and private contemplation, but then again, there's also communal contemplation. In the Christian tradition, worship is also a form of contemplation. And in fact, the highest contemplation that there is happens in the context of worship. And worship is communal. So contemplation is not necessarily individual, though there must be individual <laughs> contemplation in everyone's life. There needs to be both. They must go together. So I give an example of worship as a communal form of contemplation. Another quick example I'd, I'd give, and I, I do address this a little bit in my book. One of the really neat things I, I wish we could have talked about more here 
is, remember the, this keyword conversation. Socrates says, I would go about conversing with others. What is virtue? The, the conversation of friends who are truly united in pursuing high things together. It is, I, li I like to put it, true conversation of friends is a kind of shared contemplation. Really good conversation, which as Aristotle loved to say, that's where life is really most lived, is in really good conversation between friends. Of course, those who are happily married know exactly all, what Aristotle's talking about there, among other things. We share our contemplation with those we love in conversation, and that raises us higher. So, but, but you're right, there is, there is still tension there that still needs to be worked out a little bit. Are there any signs that any of the Jewish thought culture had reached Greece in the time these people were living? That's a great, that's a very, very, very good question. Justin Martyr, to whom I referred earlier, was convinced that Plato had been exposed uh, to the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. I believe that scholars show that that's not possible or not probable in any case. So, my, I'm not an historical scholar, but my understanding is that that didn't happen. So it, it, to me, kind of all the more raises the drama. I, I'm almost kind of glad that that's the answer because I think it preserves this beautiful aspect of St. Thomas Aquinas liked to just call, his nickname for Aristotle was the philosopher. So when he wanted to know what unaided natural reason can see, he would just go to Aristotle and say, hmm, well, the philosopher says this. And so the Christian tradition in general, kind of, uh, I, I noted Justin Martyr on the side, but otherwise the, the, the assumption, and I believe scholarship bears that out, there wasn't a, 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 at least any substantial cross-fertilization going on there. Makes the whole Greek thing be all the more amazing. Following on the question of the woman about uh, contemplation, your definition of contemplation seems to exclude action, Christian charity, you know, clothing the, the naked, feeding the sick, but yet your contemplation is the higher plane. Could you explain how you fit in acts of Christian charity? Once again, great question. In answering, I'm going to take exception to the word exclude. It's one thing to distinguish, it's another thing to separate. Contemplation is not itself clothing anybody, so granted. Contemplation is not feeding the poor or clothing anybody. And so it's, it's different. But when you say exclude, well, um, they're different parts of a whole life. Now, I, I'd further say this. The Christian tradition has been pretty clear on the most noble things for which we are made are, most especially, contemplation. Which Aquinas, St. Thomas, by the way, points out, he says, when we have charity, supernatural charity, love of God, what do we most of all do with it? He, the common doctor of the church, says that contemplation is the highest expression of charity. It's the highest expression of love of God, for contemplation unites you to God, and that is the highest expression of your love for him is that you contemplate him. So it's that loving 
gaze. So on that, I think it, it's important to bear in mind. Now, of course, we are doing theology now. Let's <laughs> look over with the boss. You know, I'm supposed to be doing philosophy. In heaven, what will we be doing? When it comes to the perfection, there is no more feeding and clothing the poor. Feeding and clothing the poor is a critical expression of charity. But, but St. Thomas wouldn't hesitate to say it is a lower one and it will drop away. It's essential and has its place in the Christian life, but it eventually drops away. When we all then come to where we do the one thing necessary, which is to contemplate, it is to live wisdom forever. Again, note how the Greeks were just right. Life is about wisdom. Christianity bears that out in spades. And there's still always questions of contemplative life versus active life. Can they fit together? St. Thomas Aquinas has a lot to say about that, just, just so you know. The fullest life he holds is the contemplate and then to charitably be sharing the fruits of contemplation with others. But most you can ever do for someone else is to actually bring that person to see the highest things. That's always to have given more than to have taken care of any of the other needs that that person has. That's not to exclude the others, but frankly, it's to see that there is an order among them, which once again is what wisdom must do. Thank you. Just before we conclude tonight, if you could just give us an insight for next week as far as you mentioned some of the fundamental questions we're actually going to be asking and things like that. Okay, well, for instance, I meant to say this earlier, when I asked, okay, when you did the little exercise of how would you explain what is a good human life? I'm going to give a fuller treatment of how would they answer that question. What, these key questions that we're saying we need to ask and we need to answer, we're going to look at several of them, the central one being what is the good human life, but also talk a few other things about what more specifically would they say that you can see about the beautiful order um, and creation. Great. All right. Thank you very much, Doctor. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.